Hey folks, my name's Andy Sido, and welcome back to another episode of Middle Class Rockstar. My guest today is Reno Divorce Front person, Brent Loveday. Hey, hey, welcome back. Hope you're doing well. I'm putting this together quickly because I've had a busy few days and I have a busy few days coming up. I just got back from my fiance Allie's grandparents' cabin in uh, Antonito, Colorado. And it's really about 40 minutes outside of Antonito in the middle of nowhere. It's just north of uh, New Mexico. And if you don't know where Antonito is, it's about, I don't know, an hour from Alamosa. And if you don't know where Alamosa is, it's in Colorado, okay? Anyway, we went up to the cabin, and we love going up there to hang out, to unplug, to take the dogs down to the river, to hike, whatever. And it was our first time up there in two years because in 2020 with the pandemic, we couldn't go up. And it's only accessible from about Memorial Day to about Labor Day. Otherwise, um, you know, you can't really get up that dirt road. So we try to take advantage of it in the summer. And we showed up for the first time since August of 2019, and um, the place was mouse-infested. And there's never been a mouse problem there. I, and, and Allie's grandparents said in the 40 years since they built the cabin, there's never been a mouse problem. Well, apparently, while we were gone, they were quarantining together, and uh, there was too many of them in a household, and they were all um, dead. It was just a bunch of dead mice all over the house. We had to throw away a bunch of things. It was gross. But we got it cleaned up, still had a great family weekend, and uh, I just got back about an hour ago. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the next trip out there where um, there won't be dozens of, of uh, dead mice to clean up. Um, anyway, needless to say, I no longer feel weird about uh, dead mice because I've seen, I've seen so many of them now. It's just no big deal. It's still sad, but anyway... Whatever. I'm back briefly. I'm putting together this episode today. Um, and then uh, I've got a, a long week. Teaching, studio, a gig in Rock Springs, uh, Wyoming later on this week. Um, and then my usual Mondays, Thursdays, and Fridays at Eddie V's down in South Denver. That's a piano trio um, where I play, in, uh, play piano and sing with a bass and a drummer. So anyway... Good stuff. My guest today is Brent Loveday. We had a great conversation, and I first heard of Reno Divorce probably in, uh, you know, probably in Westward. Um, they were always doing this or doing that or, or opening for a big artist, going on tour with a big artist. Um, they, they've been around in the Denver scene, and I, I guess we could call them punk rock, but uh, they they you know, like all bands, are in a million different genres. But they've been around in Denver for over 20 years, and or 20 years, and, and before that they were in Florida. Uh, they for, originally formed in the mid-'90s, and they've done stuff with Reverend Hort, Horton Heat. They've toured Europe a bunch of times. And it's a really cool, uh, it's a really cool outfit. And it's not normally what I'd play on my on my Spotify genre-wise, but I really I really love the music. I listen to several albums. Both of of uh, Reno Divorce and Brent Love Day um, in the Dirty Dollars, which is his other project. Um, their new album that just came out uh, just came out the beginning of this month was recorded live in Berlin, Germany, um, and it doesn't sound like a live record. It almost sounds like they did it in the studio and like got some people to applaud in between, you know, like put in one of those applause machines because it sounds really, really good. Um, it, it's, it's fantastic. And Brent's, um, Brent's solo stuff is really great as well. Um, I was listening through to that stuff and his most recent album in 2018 with Brent Loveday and the Dirty Dollars is called Hymns for the Hardened Heart. And I'd highly recommend checking that one out. It's a great record. Um, anyway, we chat about the band moving from Florida to California to become a big star, realizing he wasn't going to become a, a big giant star, and then moving to Colorado and getting Reno Divorce back together. Um, we talk about touring. We talk about addiction, all kinds of things. It was a really personal conversation. I really enjoyed um, getting to place a face to the name finally after several years. 
and uh, yeah, I guess that's about it. If you'd like to help out the podcast in a monetary way, I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. I put up lots of stuff uh, for, my, for my music, unreleased tracks, um, production breakdowns and whatnot, and I also put up some exclusive content from this podcast. For instance, a few weeks ago, I had Mickey Raphael on, who's been Willie Nelson's harmonica player for the last 50 years. And part of the conversation was not included in the podcast. He was really digging into some of the finer points of harmonica, and I just posted that to my patrons. So if you want to get some of that exclusive content, you can join for as little as $3 a month. If you'd like to help out in a non-monetary way, totally cool. Give this podcast a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It just takes a split second and really helps out a lot. Let's jump into the show. Quick thanks to our sponsors, PQ Mastering. Patrick at PQ Mastering puts the finishing touches on this podcast. And for any of your audio or restoration needs, visit pqmastering.com. Also, Narrator Music. For simple and affordable licensing for sync, visit narratorrf.com. If you have any sponsorship inquiries, feel free to shoot me an email at middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. We were mid-sentence on something. Oh, you're talking about the blasting room. And uh, in your last record, tracking it at home and sending it up there. Yeah, so um, so I guess my last record, last minute of course record, we tracked 100% in, uh, in my basement in Park Hill. And we sent it up to the blasting room to Jason Livermore and those cats. And they made it sound like we spent, you know, about 10 grand yeah. on a record that, you know, just cost my mortgage. Yeah, right. <laughs> my neighbor's grief you know, of uh, having to listen to us. But uh, my solo record, Hymns for the Heart and Heart, uh, that was another, like we were talking about your latest thing where it was kind of like you start here, start at this studio, and then you come back home and do some stuff here and then go to another room. And it was definitely like that. And that record actually was started in 2013, maybe 2014. And I went into uh, Green Door Recordings here in Denver and, uh, I just, I tracked a guitar, right? And it's like me, a scratch ball going an acoustic guitar. And yeah. uh, and I hooked up with a, a guy named Chris Jack. Are you familiar with him? No, and no. He, he was kind of like a producer dude, singer, songwriter. Yeah. It was, it was pretty hot at the time. He, he kind of made a run and then he was, he wanted to get behind the desk more, you know, and do more production stuff. And, you know, I sent him some stuff and uh, he dug it, right? And I, I was, it was cool to get out of that comfort zone with just working with like punk rock people, you know what I mean? Yeah. To work with someone come come at it with a different um different opinion, I guess, really. And um, so he's like, Yeah, you know, I think you need to draw. I think these are real songs. You know, this isn't gonna be like an acoustic record from a guy from the punk rock band. I think you need to go for it. And so he he hired this drummer and Andy Burkall, uh yeah, you know, from the Oriental and the samples and yeah he played bass on it. Like he came in, man, and it really brought my horizons and uh, perspective of, of what I could do personally. Cause I was kind of in that punk rock mold myself. Right. Yeah. And I'm like, I just, I, I, I just scream and play three chords, but you know, it was really cool to be pushed out of that comfort zone. Yeah. So, and that's interesting that you said you didn't just want to hire a punk rock producer. I mean, was it hard for you to relinquish some amount of control to somebody who might not be as versed in your genre? And I don't even want to put anyone into a genre, but might not be as versed in, in the kind of music that you love the most as you are. It was frightening, bro. It was terrifying. Yeah. And, uh, the, uh, and the best example is, um, he hired this drummer and his name is Mark William Rains. Yeah. And, and Mark comes in, man. And like I said, you know, I'm from a punk rock thing and this guy's got a, a kid that's, and he's, you know, he doesn't look like anyone that I would play with personally. You know, he's kind of like, a, he's a little bit older than me and he's kind of a rock dude and, uh, and more kind of like a jazz guy. Yeah. Know? And I'm like, Oh my God. And we're on the clock. We're at a studio, right? This isn't the basement. And uh, and it's kind of sight unseen. I didn't even really check out his stuff. And 
um, the, you know, the engineers looking at me like, what's going on, dude? Like this guy's going to play on your record. Excuse me. And, um, I said, I don't know, dude. And the first pass of the first song that I had sent him was magic. Right. Wow. So it was unbelievable. And I was just, you know, a sigh of relief. And I looked at the producer and I'm like, this is, Sometimes you gotta let go, man. You gotta you gotta let someone else take the wheel. Yeah. Every now and then. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, th- that that's neat that you did that and did and got that experience from it and, and had a different perspective. And now on the other side of things, you're saying you do a lot of home recording, and it looks like behind you, unless that's just wallpaper, you've got a pretty cool uh, home studio. Oh yeah, man. <laughs> I wish I could show them all too. Uh, but yeah, yeah. And all these guitars. I mean, like, I, I guess I'm a little bit a slight hoarder, right, when it comes to guitars. But most of these, they have a job. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, a, you get the Strat, you get a Les Paul, and you got a Telling, you got a Gretsch. And then you get, like, sonically, you're pretty much covered. Yeah, absolutely. As far as guitars go. Yep. Yeah. I've got a, you, maybe you can tell me about this, Andy. It's a Yamaha SY85 synthesizer. Have you ever heard of that? No, I'd have to. I'd have to see it. Is it? I mean, what is it? Uh, is it an old synth or a new? New? It's old, man. It's got like a little floppy disk thing. Oh my gosh! This the Terminator or the John Carpenter machine because it just makes like like Terminator music. Those things are so. And you know, it's funny because like I, you know, I I subscribe to get all those cool MIDI sounds to so I can write orchestra arrangements or whatever. And and the keyboard sounds that I get are great but i've got an early 80s yamaha synth downstairs and nothing sounds like it i mean no, no yeah it's just i don't know there's something about it that's maybe you can come over sometime man show me how to use this thing i know how to turn it on and and my six-year-old he loves it he loves that terminator shit too how how in how with the music is your six-year-old. I mean, that's him in the pictures, right? Uh, we jamming with you guys. Always, always man. Like yeah, every gig, um, every gig we do locally, that's we let him get on stage, right? Because he he wants to, and he is adamant about you can't unload the van without him. Like he's a he's a band member, right? Yeah. He's He's got the stuff that he can carry, like mic stands and cables, and he he doesn't, man. And he'll melt down. If you try and take his stuff, not a true meltdown, but he'll melt down a little bit, slight, you know, <laughs> slight lava flow. And um, you better let him get his stuff, right? And then, so it's funny too, man. We just did, um, the Dirty Dollars played the Oriental about three weeks ago, um, and which is a big stage, right? And he yeah. played on it with Reno at least three times. So as he's getting older, now he knows he needs to be plugged in and now he wants to hear himself. Right. Oh, I, I was going to ask where are you just letting him play whatever or he's okay. So now he knows that there's sounds coming out and he needs to hear his yeah, sound. And he, he wants to hear his sound. So we tell him, man, for big shows like that, that, uh, cause he's asking why I'm, I'm not plugged in. What's going on? I don't hear myself. <laughs> yeah. so, so we tell him the truth, right. You know, it's uh wireless yeah, yeah, yeah. Connected wirelessly to the amp, and then sat in the front of house guy is deciding how much you know the audience is going to hear. So he's in there, he's in the mix. He just might not hear it. Yeah, immediately. That's killer. So it, he, what he's is buying it for now? Wait, well, you know when he t- and when he turns eight, uh, you'll have to come up with something else. <laughs> well, I don't think so, though, Andy, because he's uh he's soaking it up, man. He he knows his E minors, his A minors. And he's almost got a B major, so... You might just really be plugging him in and turning him up when he's eight. I think so, man. If I if I go Tiger Mom on him, yeah. we could uh, we could definitely... Because he, he leans to it towards you know music anyway. I, I thought originally he would be a drummer because he was really, at two years old, with an aptitude, right? Like yep. hitting drums hard. Yep. And uh, But I think he's like, no, I'm going to be out front now. I don't want to be behind a drum kit. Yeah. Well, just like dad. Just like that, man. Taking it. Well, it's cool, man. I, I'm going to train him on everything. So if I ever need someone to go on tour, just like Dick Dale, 
did to his kid. Yes. <laughs> hey, I you, you play drums. You know what I uh, I will say about his kid? He is a great beer pong partner. We uh, we we opened for Dick several times, and nice, uh, year, man. That's awesome. years ago I was nineteen or twenty, and uh, his son and I would go would go off and play beer pong after afterwards and 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 i think dick caught on after a while and then you know that was probably the end of that or the end of him and i think i think he didn't play in the band after a while but he was drumming with his dad and oh. we're about the same age he was drumming with his dad and he was it was phenomenal and i don't even know that he was like formally trained right he would just was in it his whole life and was it so good up yeah what yeah. better way? What's a better way to learn? Yeah, yeah, you're completely right, man. How so? How old was he? Was he? You're the same age, right? Yeah, I think you guys were underage playing illegal beer pong. Uh, back then? No, <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> well. So we went back to to where I I was in in school. So we went back to the you know the house that had a bunch of kids jammed in in the DU area and enough kids jammed into the DU area that we could afford it. So you know there was just a lot of people living there and. We had a little sure. beer pong table set up in the back room and, and, uh, you know, had some fun. <laughs> That's awesome, man. Yeah. 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 But were, I mean, were you influenced, uh, you know, by Dick's music? I actually wondered when I was listening, you know, that it's not like it's surf rock by any means, but I, I felt like I was hearing some of those similar influences. Yeah. You know, there, there is a common denominator at the, definitely with, with, uh, let's say Dick Dale, Lee Gray, yeah, you know stuff like that. That commonality. Yeah, maybe I arrived at Dick Dale through Agent Orange. Yeah, right. Like that's how I got into it. But as soon as I got in to Agent Orange, I was instantly a fan of Dick Dale. Right. Yeah. That's was the introduction. Yeah. But, and um, the same with Link Gray, man. If if you like a distorted guitar, just like a with a little twang to it, Dwayne Eddy, Link Gray, that stuff's all gonna. Um, resonate with you plus you know uh it's accessible right yeah like when you're first starting to play guitar you can play rumble pretty easy right and then you're like i'm doing it yeah. you know I'm, I'm playing rock and roll and if you listen to you know like uh steve by or something that's light years away you know it's gonna take a long time to get up to be able to play music like that right and I just always kind of gravitated towards the easy stuff. <laughs> Not easy, but maybe uh, let's call it primal more than anything. Absolutely, primal and unrefined, maybe. Well, what are what are what is the basis of your musical influence? Because I mean, there's there's so many different things. I mean, you you know, you guys advertise punk rock a lot. I mean, or that's that's what gets told around town. That's the Westward Awards that you guys have gotten is in the punk the punk rock scene, but there's a lot of country in there too. I mean, and, and you can, you know, like almost like a drive by truckers where there's all these different influences. Great example, man. Yeah. Uh, I would say, well, definitely. Uh, I grew up in Knoxville, Tennessee. So, um, I mean, country, like we watched Hee Haw every night, like, you know, as not reruns, like, you know, Saturday night, we're in front of the TV waiting for Hee Haw, Buck Owens and Roy Clark. Roy Acuff and Minnie Pearl and all that. So to me, that was normal. Yeah. Right. And, uh, and my mom was a huge Elvis Presley fan. My dad was a very musical cat. Uh, he didn't play an instrument, but he was always, you know, he was always singing. And, and uh, I think probably for the first six years of my life, the only thing I ever heard in his presence was Johnny Horton's greatest hits. Yeah. Right. Like he would just put it in the eight track and, so that was, and though if you think about it, first of all, Johnny Horton's an amazing singer, right? He's my favorite singer of all time. Yeah. But then you have, especially that greatest hits record when he was kind of going through, that was his folk stuff, right? Where he was singing folk ballads and songs. Yeah. And that's storytelling. Right. right. That is essentially just telling a story. And so that's probably where my biggest influence was. Sam Cooke was always on. Yeah, for singing and um, so yeah, man. And I think like the first like conscious decision I made towards a band was Def Leppard, right? Like yes, <laughs> Armenia, right? Like yeah, photograph. What's not to like? 
uh-huh. you know, you got like these crazy British dudes and you have like this hot Marilyn Monroe and switchblades and these chicks are in cages. So that really will appeal to like a nine-year-old or, you know, whatever age I was when that came out. Yeah. And, um, and then from there, um, I mean, when I arrived at punk rock, that was, and I think the first record that kind of told me that this was my music was the first four years by Black Flag, which, you know, I was probably 13, 12 or 13 when I heard it. And it was like a dub of a dub of a dub. Right. That just got passed around the scene and I made it. My buddy's a big sister had it. Right. And boom, I was hooked. And on the other side of that was the Dead Milkman. Um, I can't remember the record, but it was the one with Bitch and Camaro and and all that. Yeah. And from there, it was True Sounds of Liberty, TSOL. I, I heard it on a skate video. It, and they were playing. It was like uh, it was a mixture between Revenge and Change Today. And that was it, dude. It was like uh, Joe Wood was singing on those records. And it was like The Doors meets this fucking incredible punk rock band. Wow. And I was hooked. And so you've got, as you know, influences from all over the place, right? It, how long did it take you to really put something together where you said, hey, this is me? You know, because I, I know if, if you hear one thing, like you want to be like this, and if you hear this other thing, you want to be like that as you're growing up with your influences. I mean, do you feel like you found a perfect mix of all these different influences? Are you still searching for I think it? I have now. Yeah. Like it, it's, it's taken me, you know. 26 years um but like the first kind of that other moment man where like like i was saying about link gray and stuff where you realize it's it's accessible is so we had another another case of the dub of a dub of a dub of mommy's little monster by social distortion Mm -hmm. and i had it my buddy was uh he was so hot on this band he was like this is the greatest band ever and that was around the time when they were showing uh, another state of mind on night flight remember that you're, you're probably too young to remember night flight i don't remember uh, night, flight. night flight was yeah i forgot man i'm an old man <laughs> night flight was this thing they played on usa it was a show and they would play like wacky movies and old documentaries just really cool shit. Mm-hmm. and night they would play another state of mind and i could not get into the record right i was like dude this first of all the recording was super super shitty because of the dub and one day, boom, it just clicked. I was listening to it for the fuck of it, and it clicked, right? And I just, I was obsessed with it, really. I was like, this band has something different from all these other bands that are coming up in that scene at that time. And um, and we were 10 years behind them, right? So it, they were already like a legacy band for us. But at the same time, unbeknownst to us, they were signing to a record, like a major label, right? Yeah. So um, I listened. So I listened to that record, and that's about the time I, I bought my first guitar, and I just started plucking out these melodies of of the solos that you know Mike Ness was doing back then, and I'm like, holy shit, I could do this! I could really, really do this. And we saw him in I think it was 1989. That was the, it was the first show that I ever went to, and it was after the Prison Bound record, but before like the major record a major label self-titled record yeah and my buddy and i were just fucking blown away we were, were in orlando florida and the place was totally packed and we'd never been to a show especially a punk rock show with slam dancing and stage diving and uh yeah it, it was just unbelievable so i would say and and like we didn't have youtube back then right so you learn from like actually watching the players right right and that's where I developed an ear. That's how I learned to play guitar. It was just, you watch them and you go home and you just clunk it out and you realize, Oh my God, I can do it. I can do this. Yeah. That was a huge influence, right? Like, in a, a, of course, I think the common denominator too, that really turned us on to social D back then was there was that roots aspect and uh, they embraced it. They didn't kind of make fun of it. Right. It wasn't a joke. Like let's make a, a goofy sound of country song kind of like x you know what i mean where they're just like this is where we come from right we're not uh we're not clowning this music we're embracing it and we're trying to tell you a story sure we're using it for that medium and 
Yeah, man. I'd, so for the longest time, Reno Divorce was, you know, we never, we joke about it now, but like we never really ripped them off, like directly. <laughs> we never like stole, a, like, I mean, like if you really dug deep, you could, you could find the similarities, but we always tried to make it our own. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we tried to, to push the envelope from, from uh, what they were doing a little bit, but definitely that was a good uh, springboard for us. Starting point. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you've been in Colorado, you've been doing Reno Divorce for a long, long time, and you came from Tennessee. When when did you first move out here, and did you move out here to start the band? Um, in a way, in a, in, a, in a strange way we did. So uh, my wife and I, I think I was, Reno Divorce actually started in Orlando, Florida, in around 1995 to 96. Okay. And we did some shows, and we, we had a... Uh, we ultimately would record a seven inch, um, but on Skank and Skull Records, but it just felt. Oh, and I, and I had a son, and it wasn't with my wife; it was with another a girl that I went to high school with. And um, th- this, you know, baby's mama said, "You know, I'm gonna, I can't make it here in Orlando anymore because that's where we were by that point." She's like, "I'm moving back. To, I'm moving to Colorado where I was born." And my mom says, "I can live there." And, whatnot so um she moved and uh, my wife said you know we should really seriously there's nothing here for us either and why don't we try california you know like it's the epicenter of this music that you're so heavily influenced by and it's a and i said you know it's a great idea let's just fucking do it right and plus colorado and california are a lot closer than florida and yeah. colorado so we went out there and you know i thought the fucking whole world was just waiting for me out there and it wasn't right. <laughs> yeah. Like we, yeah, we have a social distortion, the real ones that live right down the street. Yeah. So, and, and it seemed like the whole time we were out there, we were just going to Colorado, right? It's like birthday. Let's go. It's Easter. Let's go. It's Halloween. Let's go. Yeah. So eventually I, I said, you know, we're just going to move there and, and see what happens. And by chance, my uh, guitar player, from Reno Divorce had moved there as well to Aurora with uh, with his chick. So, you know, when I got back out here, uh, yeah, maybe we should get the band back together kind of thing. Well, and before we jump into that, touch on California real quick. When you said you thought they were waiting for you and they weren't, what was your experience out there? I mean, did you, did you start to get some things going or was it just, did you just fall flat? Yeah, <laughs> I would say I felt I felt fucking flat, man. Uh, yeah. I, I had one cat, man, that would fuck with me, and he was the coolest dude. He was this uh, East LA Mexican cat named Omar, and he played a rip and stand up bass. But um, I tried out for actually a band called Hellbound Hayride, and which is a pretty popular band, and um, they were actually on Slip Records, which was this is how ancillary kind of that scene is um it was the bass player of social distortions johnny mauer it was his record label and mm-hmm. I, I tried out for guitar and then i let him hear like some of the reno divorce stuff that had came out and they were like fuck this you know it's like this is fucking mike ness and i think mike ness had just put out a solo record at the time and they're like you're not the guy and i'm like all right man you know they, they, they were very cordial about it and cool about it, but it just wasn't what they were looking for. And um, yeah, so it was tough, man. It was tough getting getting the foot in the door out there. Like they, if you're not from there, <laughs> if you don't belong, don't belong. Yeah, kind of mentality. Yeah. Wow. And and so then you moved to Colorado. Moved to Colorado, right? Yeah. Which and you know it was tough for Reno too, man, because we moved here blind we didn't know anyone we picked a drummer who had did the same thing right andrew he was from seattle and um and we only had one cat in the band from colorado his name was seth seth evans and uh seth was like this amazing bass player right like a less clay pool you couldn't even wrap your head around the stuff that was going on like you would watch it and you still couldn't understand how he was getting those tones and licks and, but he wasn't really in the scene either, right? He's, you know, he grew up in Montbello and 
like he was just an outlier. Like we're all kind of outliers. And, um, but you know, when they, when we all got together and we just kept plugging and plugging and we were very fortunate, man, we got some breaks and, and the breaks weren't locally, right? Like we were, we were touring Europe, I think like maybe a year into the band, you know, just by chance because, uh, Scott Reynolds, who was the singer for, um, all, you know, the band all, which was a, the members of descendants, um, he had a new band called pavers and somehow we got on a tour with them, you know, coming back to Colorado and we just hit it off with those boys. And it's one of my favorite bands to this day. And Scott, you know, he, there would be no arena divorce if it weren't for him. Cause he really went to bat for us with his record label at the time. And, and they put out our first record, which got reviewed in Korean magazine. And it kind of, it was really, you know, an exciting time for us. But another thing too, man, that really sucked about that California move was as soon as we move, that seven inch comes out, right. That we recorded back in Florida and it's getting these reviews, man. And like maximum <laughs> rock and roll and like all these punk scenes, man, where they're like, fuck, you got to hear these guys, blah, blah, blah. And I just broke up the band, right. Just to, to move to California. It was tough, man. Frustrating, really, really frustrating. But, uh, and, and so when this first record came out, this first full record in Colorado, what year was that at this point? That would have been 2001. Did, so this is like, yeah, the 20 year anniversary of that record, to be honest. Wow. And it was a demo, man. It was a, like, we couldn't get any gigs in town. So uh, it was Matt over at Eight Houses recording, which um, they used to do all like the suburban home stuff. And he was in the, the gamuts. So we go there and we record like 13 songs thinking we're just going to get gigs around town. And it's just whatever the magic happened, man. Like everything, like he was a, a top notch dude for, you know, just being a DIY punk rocker kid. Yeah. And a really great record came out of it. Was there a good scene for what you were doing around town once you, once you kind of got into it or did you have to create something? I think it, it was, uh, I, we kind of, in a way, it felt like we kind of created our fan base because, you know, Colorado punk rock isn't really known for being influenced by, by Cal Southern California stuff. And it, it was like a whole different vibe of bands going on. There wasn't any band that really sounded like this. And, um, but I think there was just like a lot of, Everyone loves that music in punk rock, right? You know, like, oh, yeah, I like adolescence. I like Agent Orange and Social Distortion and X and all that stuff. So, and there's a lot of California transplants out here as well. And that's kind of looking back, what really fueled us was, you know, the expats of California were like, fuck, you know, there's a band like back home out here. You know, you got to go see them, mm. Reno Divorce. Mm. And that's how it, it started. That's it, man. That's, that's how my life got ruined. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. In the first, you know, 20 minutes. That's how, that's how it all came to a head. And, and at that time, being in Colorado and, and working in the scene, I mean, did you, did you still have a good relationship with uh, your son at that point? And I mean, it was, how was life in general? Life was good back then man uh so we would go on tour at the time uh for probably like the first five years six years of that i was uh it was like i was the warehouse guy right mm -hmm. like i can only get a warehouse job because i'm going on tour in two months and i'm going to be gone for a month and you're not going to hold my job so boom and that that's how it was the get down then i got a job at fedex i was like a delivery driver and FedEx ground and these people like the whole terminal was behind me. They're like, fuck, this guy's going to make it. You know what I mean? So whenever I needed time off, no hassle, it was cool. And it kind of, and that really breathes, you can breathe, right? You're like, okay, I will have a job when I get home. Yeah. Right? We're not going to have to move again, put all my shit in storage on every guitar I have. And that, uh, when you have that stress removed from you, you can you can start to be creative a little bit. That that's really cool, especially a big 
corporate company like that. You know, I know oh, there's, I believe it. there's places in town now. I know Illegal Pete's promotes that idea. You know, they have a lot of touring musicians working and they're allowed to go off and do their thing. But a place like FedEx doing that for you. And did that last indefinitely? I mean, did you break up with at what point did you break up with FedEx? Uh, I broke up with FedEx when I got too damn old to like really do the job anymore. Yeah. So I was about 35, man. I was like, I, this is breaking, man. And there's, and my hat's off, man, to the guys that still do it. But by then the band had, you know, we had that European thing going. So it was, uh, it was time to go, man. It's time to get off the truck. Yeah. Yeah. And touring in Europe. Talk about that a little bit. Um, a lot of bands try that, go over there, don't don't have success or do. I mean, going over there for you, and you guys have gone a bunch of times, um, you know, and I think you— I've lost count, Andy, to be honest, how many and, times we've been there. In this album that just came out, was that recorded overseas, the Reno yeah, Divorce so live been, album? Yeah, the, it's uh, Outsider, Escape, Escape from Berlin. Mm-hmm. Uh, was recorded at Wild at Heart in in Berlin, which is kind of it's a, the best comparison is like a CBGBs, right? Of, yeah. Like anybody who's anybody, they play Wild at Heart. Yeah. Right? And um, we got there. So this was in 2016, and it was a tour, we booked this tour with uh, a buddy of mine started an agency, right? And we were on for a while, for a long while, a really big agency over in Europe that handles like Agnostic Front and uh, Madball and Hatebreed and stuff like that, which isn't really within our genre, but they did have some rock and roll bands that we fit with. And um, in 2012, I think, we released Lover's Leap, and they kind of tried to bully us into a, a really bad record deal with Century Media, and we said, you know, we're not going to do it. And they said, well, you're not coming to Europe anymore then, right? So we took a couple years off and uh, realigned and it was Jason LaBelle on drums and Johnny Crow on bass. And we fucking dice rolled. Boom. Let's go to Europe. And it turned out to be like this amazing tour, right? People had been waiting a long time to see us. And um, I, we released a record to the and a video for Ship of Fools, which was a killer song. And uh, so there was a momentum, right, that we didn't really anticipate. And when we got back there, you know, Wild at Heart was kind of towards the end of the tour. And we were headed to England, I think, after that. <coughs> and so we get there on like a Thursday night, man. And it's that point of the tour where you're like, okay, it's good to be here. We've had a great time, but it's like four weeks. I'd like to go home, right? Right. And uh, and uh, uh, Oli, the guy that owns Wild at Heart, is like, you know, I have a studio. Would you guys like to record this set? And I'm like... And we just think, yeah, let's just see how horrible or great we sound after four weeks. And it's it's looking dismal, man. There's not like a lot of people in Berlin. Berlin's a big city, right? There's like lots to do. And it's also the city of that booking agency. So, you know, we're like, they're probably not showing up. Yeah. And uh, But then fucking people just start coming in, dude, like out of nowhere. And we're like, oh, man, this is pretty cool. Right on. And then first note dude it there's just so much energy in the room that we forget we're getting recorded we forget all about that so that's what i really dug about it was like a band's making live record it's kind of like a conscious thing right they're like okay we're going to do this and everything's tracked individually and then we're going to do overdubs if somebody fucks up this but this was just like record go ahead and you don't even know it's recording so it's a pretty magical night man in in my opinion yeah um we, we didn't do overdubs. We did have individual tracks, right, that that were sent to us. But And like I have some friends here, and I'm like, do you think I should like fix this, <laughs> fix some shit? And they're like, dude, this is like the, a fucking great punk rock record. Don't touch anything. Just yeah. run with it. What's, and that's what we did. It sounds really good. I mean, it sounds, I mean, the quality, whoever recorded it, you know, it's, it's great. Oh yeah, Oli knows his shit, man. He's he makes like the studio he has in the in the basement of Wild Heart is a legit studio studio that um, 
great records have been made. You know, a lot of people haven't heard of them because it's just not mainstream music. But um, yeah, I mean, super talented. He plays in Church of Confidence. So he, he knew what he was doing. Um, and we could have, it was done so professionally by him that we could have done the overdubs and whatnot. But, you know, we just decided not to. Let's just put it out there. So you, you hear me fuck up quite a bit. <laughs> like I made some mistakes. I played some clams. But um, it's great too, man, because it's, yeah. you know, it's a three piece. It's a trio. Cool. So there really is nowhere to hide. Yeah. Right. Yeah, sure. And that that's what I love about it. It's like this is this is what it sounded like on that night. It's a it's a proper time capsule. Oh, it sounds great. And what is that? You know, when people talk about a band, an indie band developing a fan base, you know, talk about how often you need to play each city or whatever. Sort of that goes a little bit out the window if you're talking going overseas because you can't fly over there every three months and play the same venue. How were you able to build, build a fan base for Reno divorce over there over time? Um, I think it's really Reno divorce has always been a live band. You know what I mean? It's so we sound like we do on the records live, but there's an energy that of, of seeing us live that I don't know. It's, I don't want to say like we're the greatest live band in the world, but it's it's a lot of fun. And when you like witness it, and especially when you witness it starting off, a lot of our fans are from the small club days, right? When you're like right in front of a band and like you, they're spitting on you, right? Like when they go to sing, there's spits getting in your face and it's sweaty and there's something. And those that's a fan for life, right? That, that sees us on that. And then to see us come up slowly onto like a big festival stage, and they're like, wow, this is special. It's unique. Like we weren't a good live band. And I, and, you know, I, it's the songs too, right? It's, uh, it's the, the kind of the, I don't know, man, we're really hard on ourselves to, we just can't put bullshit out. Right. Like if I'd rather put a record out every five years of 12, 13 solid songs mm -hmm. than just release every year. You know yeah. what I mean? So that's always been my opinion of it. Yeah. Yeah, and you guys, I, I mean, when I first saw your name, and it was probably in Westward, I don't know, 10, 12 years ago, when I was first seeing your name um, around town, it was in connection with Reverend Horton Heat. He was heading through town, and you guys were opening for him or something. How was that connection first made, and, and what's his relationship been like with you guys? Oh, my God. The, uh, Jim and all those boys have been nothing I guess mentors, you know, really been the coolest cats in the world. The first time, so this is really funny, man. Uh, my wife turned me on to Reverend Horton Heat when I was, gosh, I must have been 17. Maybe she was 17 as well. And um, I heard it and it was immediately one of those moments where like, what the fuck? This was made just for me, yeah. this music. Yeah. It's the per and Horton Heat in particular is the perfect mix of a punk rock band and the Stray Cats. Like that, you have Brian Setzer ability, but you're playing punk rock, and um, which means you must really like punk rock. When you know what I mean? Yeah. You could be playing, you could be playing this wild ass shit, but you would. This is our common denominator. And um, her friend was actually kind of fooling around <laughs> with the tour manager of need at the time right so whenever they came to town we got to go to all those shows right and um so like we're just like goofy kids man and seeing this every night made an impact so then fast forward to about 2003 we finally get to play with the rev and we played he was in town four nights two of them were at the lion's lair one was at la rumba and the last one was at the bluebird and the first night hit it off instantly. And the last night we played with them. Um, I'll never forget this, man. It was so awesome. Uh, Jimbo, the bass player, comes up to me after the gig and goes, you guys were incredible. And and he was, he was sincere, right? You know, it wasn't just rock star patting shit. You know what I mean? Pats on the back. And this chick comes up and she sees that, that it's Jimbo and that she's talking to me. And uh, Jimbo... She's, you know, trying to cake him. And he goes, hey, did you see this guy's band? She, oh, yeah. It's like social distortion. Yeah, whatever. And Jimbo goes, no, don't say that. Don't say that. Yeah. Goes, these guys are great. I played with social distortion. I played for my best. Goes, these guys are great. Yeah. We're, 
you should have listened. And uh, and I was sober at the time too. And Jim was trying to give me shots of Jaeger. And I'm like, no, thank you, man. Cool, cool. It turns out we both, our sons are named Austin. Like it's a weird coincidence. Yeah. And uh, the fast friends ever since, man. And we actually, we've toured with Reverend Horton. He, we played with him. <laughs> Uh, we've hooked up at festivals across uh, the country. So I've seen, Excuse bless me. you, Excuse uh, me. and I've seen those cats for years, man. I've seen the development of their band and where they're at today. Yeah, it's, it's the, I would say that's probably been, next to Scott Reynolds, another big uh, reason Reno Divorce has gotten as far as we did. Yeah, yeah. How how long have you been sober for? Are you Are you still sober? No, so the, I don't know if you've seen our new video, man. Uh, Hopeless and Dopeless. It's on the live record too, as a bonus track. Yes, yep. No, and it was the first single that came out mid-May for that. Was yep. yeah, yeah. They're kind of playing it on the 105, the Colorado Sound. Yep. Um, so yeah, man, I've I've had spurts of like sobriety. Uh, I would say, man, and not really completely sober right like some of them like during that span when we went back to europe in 2016 i had three and a half years right of like sober mm. and uh, and my and boot alcohol isn't my problem you know I'm, I'm a drug addict right and so and then then i relapsed and we went back to europe uh in 2019 and then I, i've struggled like all through the pandemic and um uh, i lost um, like one of my dearest relatives, my baby cousin, I lost her to an, an overdose in 2019 as well. So I would say, I mean, to be honest, I'm back in the program now. I have, you know, I have a, a little bit of sober time and I'm back on track, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a motherfucker, man, out here in America, yeah. all over the world, but especially here, you know, we, we really have a drug problem with our society. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, is there a specific, um, is there a specific thing that, that you always are called to? I mean, is it, is it alcohol? Is it a certain drug? Uh, well, I mean, everybody, I, I can't speak for everyone, but of course, everybody that I know it's the caviar, man, it's cocaine, you know, it kind of starts there Yeah, and it, it's really subtle, right? Like we, we were doing that shit in, uh, in the nineties and and in the early 2000s, when, you know, it was easier to get real cocaine. And next thing you know, you think you got a handle on it. And then, oh, my God, I'm buying this shit now. Right. And, oh, my God, I'm not sharing this shit. And then now I'm in the bathroom and I'm doing all the shit by myself. And nobody's seen me for, you know, a week. Yeah. So and then it, it's a natural progression. man. it's going to happen to everyone that, um that does it. You know, my mom used to say, if you play with shit long enough, you will get some on you. And, and that's what happens inevitably. And then, you know, crime starts after that, right? Like you got to pay for it somehow. And, and that's how you kind of, you get locked into it, into that lifestyle. Yeah. And you're in situations that you'd never. So the song hopeless and dopeless, man, the, the first line of the song is, have you ever been so alone in a room full of people screaming your name? Yeah. Right. And I remember the exact moment when I came up with that line was it was at Herman's Hideaway and we were playing a sold out show, Reno Divorce, we're headlining. And on the stage is like you can't see it from the audience, but you can see it on stage, this clock. Right. And it tells you how long you got to play. It tells you when closing time is what or yeah. whatever. And, you know, I just snapped off in, in the green room. And they're like, you got to play now, right? And I remember looking at that clock and this fucking depression hits me that I have to be away from dope for an hour, right? And people are screaming and I'm like, I would trade it all just to go back into the green room. And it, and that was heartbreaking. That was gut-wrenching and just disappointing, man, to, to reach that place. And, and you think that would get you, get you right, but you know it goes on for another five years, right? Right. Just, well, because well, you, you would like to think that there's no way you would trade it for that because you worked so hard for that sold out show. Um, you know, I mean, you work for years 
for those for those kind of shows. Yeah, you, and then you get them, and you're like, "Fuck it," you know. Let's go get high. Yeah. Is is there a good support system in Denver? Um, you know, for for being sober. I mean, is is there good places to go? Is there good friends for you? You know, you you have to kind of. So I went through a rehab. I actually went through West Pines in 2013, and it was amazing. It was phenomenal, right? I can't recommend it enough. Um, and I stayed sober for about a year and a half, and then we played punk rock bowling, like the proper festival. And um, and I used that night, right? It was like celebratory use, and it wasn't much, right? It was just the casual, like you know, a couple lines of coke or whatever. Yeah. And um, but when you it it fucking crushed your soul, right? You're like, oh my why did I do that? You know, my wife's out there, she's pregnant with our baby. And, you know, I'm trying to sweat it out. I'm just trying to get to the next gig. What have I done? And instead of like reaching out to that support system that I built at West Pines, uh, I just, I tucked it down my shirt, right? That's just one for me, but that it's gnawing at your soul, right? It's, it's gnawing at your heart. And then the next time there's dope on the table. Well, I fucked up once, twice isn't going to hurt anyone. And then twice turns into, you know, 13 times and and you're back right where you started. Yeah. In the end. Or even worse, like it, it's always escalating, right? Right. You know, and so sooner or later, okay, I can't snort this anymore. I can't smoke it. Well, what's next? Right. Let's bang it. And then, and then it's, it's a whole different ball game. It's like you're in the big leagues now. Yeah. And, uh, you just want to get cut from the team, though. <laughs> right, right. Big, please fucking cut me. Cut me from the team. Yeah, man. yeah, yeah. And yeah, and there's a dishonesty to, you know, because I, you know, my cousin, for example, right? You know, I've been stuck on my own shit, and I know she's in her own shit, and I can't, and I can give advice and whatever, but uh, I'm not living honestly. You know what I mean? And I can't really judge her. I can put it off and be like, I'm going to get my shit straight and go to her and see if she's all right. And then, you know, you get the call. She's gone. Yeah. So. Yeah. That's, I guess, uh, drugs have, have always been a central theme for Reno divorce. Right. And, and if you dig into the catalog, you'll, I mean, there's just lots of songs about it, man. Cause it's, that's all I knew for a long time. And yeah. Yeah. And, I, I mean, you also have, along with the 25-year catalog of Reno Divorce, you also have um, Brent Loveday and the Dirty Dollars, and you put out an album in 2011, uh, Come Down from the Come Down, and then uh, Hymns for the Hardened Heart in 2018. I mean, with those, with the solo stuff, I mean, do you feel that you're even more vulnerable and more honest lyrically in that stuff and what you're talking about? Because it's it's a little bit of a solo project, a self title. Um, I'm I don't know, Andy. Um, I mean, because there's definitely some desperate songs on that stuff. Um, the solo stuff was really, I never kind of intended for it to be a thing. I I always thought my name would be attached to Reno Divorce, and that was it. And but um, our drummer Andrew got an injury and through his shoulder in about two thousand and eight seven maybe they had all these songs man that were frankly like the rest of the band what weren't into right and um and like i'd write all the songs for reno and and i'd bring these songs to them and they're like oh, i don't know man so the drummer's injured and i just start playing acoustic shows right and the songs are cool so and people are like fuck man but in my heart of hearts i know that it's never going to make the, the step to rent or divorce. Right. So I'm like, okay, let's just keep, keep it separate. And, um, I don't know that I consciously, I don't know though, man, now that you mention it like that, it's like a lot of those songs are, especially on hymns for the heart and heart, like come down from the come down is more of like the rockabilly influence stuff. It's like, it's right. fun. Um, there's a couple of like pretty sad songs, but ironically that were written during the California, days right where i wasn't using drugs or 
or anything. I was actually completely sober back then. But you hear this desperation of like, I can't, nothing's working, right? And, um, but um, yeah, there are some kind of religious songs on Hymns for the Heart and Heart with that desperation uh, behind them. And, you know, and I definitely was going through some some drug shit, not, not as bad as it ultimately would get. But um, yeah, I don't know. They're just different, just a different outlet, I guess. And yeah. it wasn't like a conscious, like career move at that time. <laughs> right. Right. To, uh, to do it, man. It was just like, okay. And then, um, but I mean, I'm glad it happened. Like I'm glad I have these two different avenues to express myself, you know, because people expect with a rain or divorce, which I still have in my heart. I still have that, that energy and that anger. And, and, uh, I still want to express myself in that way. But with the dirty dollars, it feels like I could do anything, right? If we wanted to do a, a reggae song, there's no, uh, there's nothing that constrains us, right, or confines us, right, right. Well, in, in listening through just to the to the most recent, uh, you know, Brent Loveday versus the most recent Reno Divorce, right? There's there's heavy lyrics and there's heavy songs on both, and also the Reno Divorce album is a live album, so it's a, it's a different vibe to begin with. But there, there just seemed to be something very personable, uh, personal, excuse me, about hymns for the hardened heart. So I was just wondering if there was a different approach between the two. Um, but uh, yeah, um, absolutely, man. There's more. Uh, there's a lot of honesty on hymns for the hardened heart. You know, yeah. there's a song uh, about my mom dying and there's just a, yeah, definitely heavier lifting, I think. Yeah. With the solo stuff. Yeah. Well, I, I appreciate your time chatting with me and I want to remind all the listeners that uh, Outsider Escape from Berlin, which is a live record we chatted about, came out on June 1st. It's on all streaming platforms. Is it, is it on vinyl? Is it pressed? So, yeah, it's on, in the beginning of August, uh, you'll be able to get it on Wolverine Records out of uh, Germany. But they, we've also got a uh, U.S. distro deal going. So uh, and it's going to be a double live record because, you know, it, it's long. So it's two LPs and it's colored vinyl. So you will be able to get it here in, uh, in America. Nice. Beginning of August. Killer. Killer. Well, thanks so much for chatting with me. Stay on the line with me for just one second, if you don't mind, but in front of the audience. Yeah, no problem, brother. Thank you so much. Peace. Thank you for having me. That's Brent Loveday. What a cool dude. Don't you all just want to go listen to all the music now? Do it up. Reno Divorce and Brent Loveday and the Dirty Dollars. Thanks so much for listening. Once again, if you'd like to help out in a monetary way, I'm on Patreon at patreon.com slash Andy Sido, S-Y-D-O-W. Any questions, comments, concerns, hate mail, or death threats, you can send them to middleclassrockstar at gmail.com. I'll chat with you next week. Let's play out with Hopeless and Dopeless by Reno Divorce. Have you ever been so alone In a room full of people Your